Well, um, some thoughts that I have been thinking about here for several months now um, is in regards to uh, what I would say are foundational teachings or foundational truths, themes that are in the Bible. Um, I lead a, or teach a, a homeschool class, and each morning we start with a devotional. And so this year we were looking at just some of the foundational teachings of the Bible. And there are a lot of truths in Scripture that you have to stop and think, is this truth dependent on another truth? In other words, is it a fruit of something that's deeper, or is this truth one of the foundational truths that other truths grow out of? And so I was thinking about what are some of the big overarching themes in Scripture? And one of the first ones that I think we should all agree on is Christ. There's no greater theme in the Bible than the Lord Jesus. In Luke 24, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, it says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So this idea of beginning with Moses and the prophets. Well, what is Moses and the prophets? That pretty much encompasses the entire Old Testament. In other words, Jesus just explained to him from the Old Testament about himself. So Jesus is not just a theme of the Gospels. He's not just a theme of the New Testament. He is the theme of the whole Bible. And so you see that that is one of the overarching themes of the Bible. Any truth that we glean from Scripture has its basis, has its root in who Christ is. Well, a second theme that I think we see that is an overarching theme in the Bible is the topic of love. And again, this is not just a theme of the New Testament. Um, Although we do have many verses and chapters uh, dealing with the topic of love um, in the New Testament, But what about the Old Testament? Is love just one of those themes that comes up in the New Testament and is absent in the Old Testament? Well, when Jesus was asked which was the greatest commandment in the law, he responded this way in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So love is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hang the whole law and the prophets. So every command in the Old Testament is secondary to love. It hangs. It depends on love. If you don't love, you can't fulfill the law. So love is one of the most important or foundational themes in the whole Bible. And so this morning what I would like to do is I would like to uh, look uh, at love for one another, what the scripture has to say about love for one another, and more specifically how Christ is our standard for love. So really kind of encompassing those two themes that I talked about, Christ and love, and see how they're joined together in the example of Christ. We already said that there are many chapters and verses dealing with love, and many of them are commands uh, that tell us that we are to love one another. John says um, in several places in 1 John um, that we are to love one another. Here's one example, John 3, 1 John 3.23. This is his commandment, that we believe in, his name, in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So this is... Uh, one, of the, one of the verses dealing with love for one another, and it's a command for us. Peter says in uh, his first epistle that we are to keep fervent in our love for one another. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that we are to increase and abound in love for one another. And it's all throughout uh, the New Testament, all throughout the Bible. Um, Jesus said in John chapter 15, This I command you, that you love one another. So it's obviously a big deal because it comes up over and over again throughout Scripture. We are to love one another. But what does love mean? What does love look like? I mean, if we're told to do something, don't we need to understand exactly what it is and what it means? 
Some have said that love is the most misused and abused word in the English language, and I would believe that. Um, just think of how broad a spectrum we use the word in our daily conversation. We really do misuse the word love in our daily conversation. You'll hear someone say, boy, I sure love that restaurant, or I love that movie, or I love going to the beach, or I love my family, I love my husband, I love my wife, I love God. So here we have something incredibly broad. I love God and I love that restaurant. I mean, how, how do you define something like that? Um, well, first of all, we can't use the world standards and the world's definition of what love is. Paul gives us probably the most comprehensive description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. And many of you probably have that whole chapter memorized. In that chapter, we see what love is and what love does and what it should produce in our lives. So we have, we have a lot of teaching on love. But if you're like me, you still need help in defining it. Many times we need to see love modeled. What does it look like in action? If you grew up in a Christian home, you had an example of your parents uh, showing love towards one another, showing love towards you. But even the best of Christian parents still fall short in love. Um, you may know someone in the church who is a model example of what love is, but even they stumble and fall in many ways. We cannot look at any one person and say that right there is the definition of love, except for one, except for one person that we can do that. And he is the definition of love, and that is Christ. He is the standard that all other loves are compared to. And so if you would, turn to John's Gospel, chapter 15. This is just kind of the verse that I'm going to base this message on. John, chapter 15, and verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So Jesus gives us a command, but then he also gives us an example, just as I have loved you. What a wonderful thing that God didn't just command us to love one another and then leave us to ourselves to try and figure out what it is that we're to do. He came and showed us what love is. And he calls us to follow him in that love. He calls us to love one another as he has loved us. We don't just have a dictionary definition of love as our standard. Uh, our standard is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Definitions and descriptions are helpful, and we can be thankful for them. And there's been many that I've, I've heard. There was one... Um, by an author, Paul David Tripp, that I have found to be extremely helpful to me. Um, but we have to remember, if our definitions of love don't line up with the life of Christ, then the definition is wrong. Because Jesus is the standard. He is the definition. So as much as your definition lines itself up with the life of Christ, and you can say that's correct, but if it doesn't line up with the person and life of Christ, then your definition needs to be adjusted. And so what I want to do this morning is look just briefly at a few ways in which Christ has loved us um, and, and show how this is how we are to love one another. And it will only scratch the surface, and I really mean that. I, we're just barely touching this topic here, but I trust that it will be a help to us all. So the first way, um, first way that I want to look at that Christ has loved us is that he has loved us sacrificially. Um, this idea of sacrifice implies a cost. You know, you didn't, you didn't offer a sacrifice that costs nothing. In fact, David, that when he comes to offer the sacrifice, he wants to buy this plot of land to offer a sacrifice there. And the man who owns the land says, no, just take it, and here's the, here's the oxen. You can, you can offer them there. And David says, I am not going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord which costs me nothing. 
In other words, sacrifice, it costs. There is, there is a cost involved. Um, you have to give up yourself for the one that you are sacrificially loving. If you say, I, you know, I'm sacrificially loving and it's not costing you anything, then something's wrong. In the, um, the homeschool class that I was referring to earlier, um, we were talking about love and looking at some different descriptions of love. We went to 1 Corinthians 13 and, and looked at love is patient, love is kind, and some other passages um, in Scripture dealing with love. And I would always ask, um, how do we see this modeled in the life of Christ? How do we see kindness in the life of Christ? And there would be all kinds of examples that would come up. But one of the examples that almost repeatedly, every time came up, was the cross. And isn't that true? The greatest example of sacrificial love that we can ever have is the cross. Um, there has never been and will never be such a display of love as was demonstrated by Jesus laying his life down on the cross. Uh, it is the supreme example of love. It's the grand theme. The cross is the grand theme of the church. Countless books have been written, numerous sermons. I mean, the songs that we sing, they're all based around the love of Christ and the cross. Um, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then in Galatians, Paul also says, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, the cross is the grand theme that we should proclaim, the love of Christ as displayed on the cross. But we need to be careful that we not overlook the life of Christ as well. We can focus, and we should absolutely focus on the death of Christ, the cross. But don't overlook the fact that Christ lived a life that we are to imitate and follow. It isn't as though Jesus lived a life of little love and then showed us love on the cross. It was quite the contrary. His whole life was full of love, and then in love he died for us. And so what I would like to do is just pick out a few examples from the life of Christ of how we see this love uh, demonstrated. And the first passage uh, that I'd like you to turn to is in Philippians uh, Philippians chapter 2, this is a familiar passage, Philippians chapter 2, and I'll start reading in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I'm going to stop right there. So in, in these first two verses, verses 3 and 4, Paul is giving us an exhortation on how we should live and how we should conduct ourselves. He says, you know, we're not to do anything from selfishness or empty conceit. We're to regard one another as more important than ourselves with humility of mind. So he's giving us this exhortation. And then in verse 5, he connects his exhortation to the life of Christ. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's as if he's saying, see Christ here? He had that attitude, and you are to have that attitude too. Um, and then in verse uh, 6 and following, it describes for us how Christ modeled this, um, this example or this love. Uh, in verses uh, 6 and 7, it's, uh, it shows the height of his glory. And it's, uh, let me just read verses uh, 6 and 7 again. Who, although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So existed in the form of God. I read over this so much, and I, 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 you almost become numb to the, the reality and the truth of it. Christ existed in the form of God. Do we understand something of the glory of Christ and what he had with the Father, oneness with the Father, complete fellowship with the Father? It says um, of Jesus... Um, that he, well, it, it's a, that he spoke the world into existence. Paul says in Colossians that all things were created by him, by Christ. The glory that, that Christ had, he, from eternity past, he existed from eternity past. The, we can't comprehend the glory of, of Christ. Um, when the three disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Jesus transfigured before them, what was their response? They fell on their faces before him. And then John on the island of Patmos, the same thing. He sees Christ, and what's his response? He says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Why? Why do the disciples fall at Christ's feet like a dead man whenever they see him? Because they're beholding the glory of Christ. And so when we read this here in in Philippians, who although he existed in the form of God, I, I impose my own thoughts too much into this. I think on a human level. I think of someone like a king on this realm, a king becoming a servant. And that is, I mean, that, that's a humbling thing. I don't want to detract from that. But it's, it's infinitely lower than the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus coming, becoming a man, the infinite um, glory that he had, and then becoming a man. Well, what about this exalted position? He became a man. He became like one of us. How did he do that? How do you go from being the exalted Lord of the universe to becoming a man? Well, verse 7 tells us how that happened. It simply says he humbled himself, or I'm sorry, he emptied himself, verse 7 there. And then in verse 8 it says he humbled himself. But verse 7, he emptied himself himself. What is sacrificial love? Well, part of it is you must empty yourself. How many times we fall short in love because we fail to be emptied of ourselves? Uh, If you think about times where you've struggled to live a life of sacrificial love, what was really being asked of you in that moment? I mean, we can, we can exaggerate things in our own mind, but what's really at the root issue here? What's going on? Some of the examples that I thought about from my own life um, are, are simple things like giving preference to someone else, maybe sacrificing my own wants and wishes in order to do what someone else would desire to do. Or maybe it's an interruption to my schedule. I had my perfectly laid out plans and something interrupts it and I have to sacrifice those plans. Why is that so difficult? Why does it feel like this is such a hard thing to do? Is it not because of pride in us? We feel like we own our own life. We own this plan. We own this schedule. And who are you to come in and interrupt my plan, my schedule, it's pride. It rubs our pride the wrong way. It's a lack of us emptying ourselves, and that's why the sacrifice is so painful. Pride and love cannot coexist. We will never grow in love if we are living in pride. And that's where we see it so perfectly modeled in the life of Christ. He loved, and it says here, he humbled himself. That The two go hand in hand. May we follow in Christ's example of sacrificial love by being emptied of ourselves. But also in this passage, we see again the ultimate demonstration of that emptying, uh, and that's found in verse 8. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he humbled himself to the point of death 
death on a cross. Jesus lived a life of sacrifice, and it was all leading up to the supreme sacrifice of laying his life down on the cross. His life of sacrificial love was all leading up to and pointing to the great, greatest demonstration of love, and we talked about that earlier. If we are not daily walking in sacrificial love, don't be deceived and think that later we'll lay our life down in sacrificial love. The lesser is training ground for the greater. If we don't love sacrificially now for our spouse and our children at home, we won't live sacrificially on the mission field somewhere. Um, Young people, if you aren't sacrificially loving your family now, you're not going to sacrificially love your future spouse someday. This is training ground right now. Uh, Luke chapter 16 says, uh, Jesus says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. So we have the example of Christ here. He sacrificed in countless ways for 30 plus years. I mean, the, the estimate I think is 32, 33 or so that he was on the earth. He sacrificed for that amount of time, and then we have the, the pinnacle, the peak there on, on the cross. But he lived a life of, of sacrificial love leading up to that. So what are some of the ways? You know, I talked about these countless ways that he lived a life of love. What are some of the ways? Um, and this is where I definitely am only scratching the surface. But one example that I feel like we can't uh, miss is in uh, John chapter 13. This is the example of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So John chapter 13, John's gospel chapter 13. I'm just going to kind of jump into the middle here. Um, Beginning in verse 4, says that uh, Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then jump down to verse 12. So when he, that is Jesus, had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. So here's a a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Christ is our example, and he specifically tells us that in this passage. He says, do you see what I did? You also are to follow. You're to imitate me in this and do this to one another, to wash one another's feet. Well, what is, what is this idea of washing one another's feet? And I know we've, we've heard this before, but it is not, it's not necessarily a literal uh, exhortation or command for us to physically wash one another's feet. But in those days, of course, dusty roads are wearing open sandals, their feet get dirty, they come in from walking, and you have one of the servants to sit down and wash the feet of the master, wash the feet of the guest that comes into the home. What, what kind of a, an act is that? It's a low act. It's a, an act of a servant. It's someone who takes the lowly position to wash the feet. The master doesn't wash the servant's feet. The servant washes the master's feet. But what does Jesus do in this example? He turns it completely around for us to see that here the master and the Lord is washing the disciples' feet. The master is serving the the servant in this case, washing their feet. And then he exhorts us. He tells us, you are to follow in that example. You should do as I did to you. So what does that look like for us? Is there any service, is there any action that we would look at and say, well, that's too lowly for me? That's pride. That's wrong. Christ said, do as I did. He got down. He washed the disciples' feet. So how can we serve one another in love in this way? 
Well, some other examples. He was constantly giving of himself to help and to serve others. I mean, the, the Gospels are just full of accounts of Jesus helping one other people. After healing Peter's mother-in-law, it says in the evening they brought their sick ones to him and he healed them all. That's in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, no, it isn't. I believe that's in Mark chapter 5. Um, but, again, it's something that we can just read over and over. You know, here he comes, uh, the, uh, the crowd comes to him, and he heals them all. But think of what is being asked of him. An entire, sounds like, an entire evening of, we'll say, sitting out on the porch with one after the other, after the other, coming, Lord, I need, I need deliverance, I need help, I need healing. And he heals him, and he heals him, and he heals him over and over again. I did... Um, a word search or um, in uh, the New Testament for this phrase, and he healed them. And it comes up numerous times, especially in the book of Matthew. Someone is brought to Jesus or a crowd of sick people come to Jesus in the phrase, and he healed them. What is that? That is a pouring out of himself in service for others. How about this? 5,000 people follow him, and none of them brought preparations for themselves. Talk about imposing on someone. You know, you've had someone come to your house like, oh, I haven't had supper yet. Well, we've got, got an extra plate here. Go ahead. Well, 5,000 come, and there's no food in imposition. What does Jesus do? He doesn't get impatient with any of them. Instead, he instructs the disciples what to do, and he provides for them. That, that mentality of I'm looking to benefit and to serve others, that is what Christ's whole life was about. Well, here's, here's another one that I thought of, another category that I thought of. He was constantly being interrupted, yet was never impatient. Um, and think about some of these examples. So in Mark chapter 1, uh, it says that he was praying. Well, let me back up a little bit. So he's, he's had a, a busy day, we'll say, of ministering to the multitude. And um, he gets up early before daylight and goes out to a secluded place to pray. So it's as if he's finding his private prayer closet to get away before everyone else is awake, and there he's praying. And during that time, the disciples come and find him, and, Lord, everyone's looking for you. What kind of a response does he give at that time? I mean, put yourself in that situation. I'm sure some of you have had this where I finally get, you know, 15 minutes to be able to read and pray, and there's a little tap, tap, tap on the door, Mommy, Daddy, whatever. And just think about that, the interruption. And like, do you not care that here I am trying to seek my Father? No, that's not his response. The patience of the Lord. Jairus asked him to come and heal his daughter. So he goes along. This is a good thing. And on the way, someone interrupts him, the woman with the issue of blood. What a, you know, here, I'm, I'm trying to help that this girl is going to die. That's not his response. He stops and he, he attends to this other one uh, who is also in need, the patience of Christ. Um, he was teaching in a house, and Chris uh, referred to this earlier, surrounded by a crowd of people, and they tore a hole in the roof and lowered down the paralyzed man in front of him. Talk about an interruption. Here you're having a Bible study. You know, here I, I imagine a big room and Jesus is in the middle and this crowd of people around him and he's opening up the scriptures to them. And the roof opens up and things like Chris was saying, things are falling down and here comes this man. Instead, there's not a hint of, what are you guys doing? I'm trying to have a Bible study here. Nothing like that. He stops the Bible study and gives attention to those that are in front of, to the one in need. Jesus, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, here he goes as a guest, and really this is at the beginning of his ministry, but he goes as a guest to the wedding. Um, we were just, several were at the wedding yesterday there in uh, Josh and Katie's wedding. Imagine you're a guest, invited guest. You're not supposed to do anything at the wedding. You're just supposed to come and celebrate with them. And, you know, they come knocking you. You know, they ran out of some wine here. Not There's no wine. What, what are you going to do? What can you do to serve wine to all these people? Jesus, again, he doesn't grow impatient in that. Instead, 
he shows kindness and love. He serves them. And I was thinking about this in Jesus' life and example, that it really was. It was a ministry of being interrupted over and over again. And we oftentimes can mistakenly think that we live in our own little dominions where it's nice and controlled and that we get to decide when and where we are going to serve and give and sacrifice. It's as if we say, you know, I think this weekend I'm going to set aside some time and I'm going to go serve in some way. And that's good. You know, we, we do need to plan for things like that. But it's as if it's like this time right now is my time. And I am going to go serve. I'm going to go give sacrificially tomorrow at 1030, you know, as if it's some planned thing. Well, that is totally absent in Jesus' life. Every moment he was giving of himself to others. There was no me time for Jesus. The only me time was when he would get away and pray. And even that he was getting interrupted in. So how about us? Are we open to the interruptions in our life that require us to give something of ourselves, to give of our time, to give of our energy, to give of our money, to give of our plans, to give of ourselves? Are we open to that? How do we respond in those moments when you get that interruption? Um, How we respond says a lot about our hearts. Well, another aspect to consider in this idea of sacrificial giving is that Jesus gave of himself to everyone indiscriminately. He didn't just sacrifice himself for those closest to him, you know, the disciples and maybe Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, although he certainly did sacrifice for them, but it wasn't restricted only to them. He also gave of himself to strangers to the multitudes, how about this, to the religious leaders who hated him. He was giving of himself to them. And it made me think of Lance's message a few uh, weeks back um, where he was bringing out the fact that we can all love sacrificially to our friends and those in our own personal inner circle, but are we giving of ourselves to our neighbors, our coworkers, or those in our lives that we deem less lovely. Um, Jesus certainly did. He didn't categorize people at all. He gave of himself to all. He loved indiscriminately. So that's the, the first way in which I want to consider how Christ loved us, is that he loved us sacrificially. It cost him something. And we are to imitate that in our love for one another. Well, the second way that Christ loved us is that he loved us unconditionally. He loved us when we were not deserving or when we were undeserving. And this is where sacrificial love becomes particularly hard. Loving those whom we deem deserving is usually not that difficult. Those we deem deserving of our sacrificial love are probably the ones who love us back. Sacrificing for those we love and who we see no fault in is not a hard thing. You know, I was thinking about uh, a message that I listened to. Well, I'm sure a lot of you have heard the message that Ravi Zacharias uh, has given called I, Isaac, Take Thee, Rebecca. And in that message, he talks about how uh, when he was first married, um, you know, I'm imagining it was probably on the honeymoon or something and his wife, you know, asks for something in the middle of the night, you know, I'm thirsty or something, and he gets up and goes and gets her a glass of water as if it's some great sacrifice, and it is. You know, it's a a very loving thing, but what's going on in that moment? Here, this, this new bride that he loves dearly, and he sees no fault in that person at all, and it's a delight to be able to sacrifice for the one that you see no fault in, no, no error. This is the perfect one, and here I am serving the perfect one. Well, fast forward months or years or decades later, there's still that same sacrifice, I'm sure. There's still the serving one another, but what's changed? You begin to see faults in one another. I thought I'd married this perfect person, and they're not perfect. And it, it becomes difficult. Well, what do we have in the life of Christ again? He sacrificed not just for the perfect. He sacrificed for the imperfect. 
There is nothing supernatural about loving those who love you. But we are called to do something much higher than that. We are called to love those who are our enemies, to love those who are unlovely, to love those who are undeserving. And Jesus says that in Matthew 5. We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And speaking truthfully for myself, for my own life, I fall short in this area of love long before needing to love my enemies or those who persecute me. I fail to love those who do love me. I fail to love my friends and my family consistently. And why is that? Well, remember we said that the lesser is training ground for the greater. If we aren't loving those uh, we are if we're struggling to love those who love us we certainly are not going to be able to love our enemies so why is it that we many times struggle to love even our own family and back to the previous point what we talked about earlier pride in self is the greatest enemy of love if we are struggling to love it's because self is still on the throne Another manifestation of self is that it wants to keep a record of wrongs. So-and-so did such-and-such, and and that hurt me. That, That was offensive to me. And so now I'm struggling to show love uh, to that person. Or I feel justified to be less loving in some way because of what they've done. Well, that's not unconditional love. That's the exact opposite. That's called conditional love. You have not met my expectations, so I'm released from my obligation to love. You know, here, here we've got this agreement. You're kind and loving to me. I'll be kind and loving to you. Something happened there, so the deal's off. Well, that is, that's like a contract. It's conditional love. That is not the kind of love that Jesus showed to us. Did he calculate our goodness and our loveliness and determine that we were going to be a really good candidate for his love? Is that the way that Christ was towards us? And of course, the answer to that is no. And I think one of the clearest verses that we have on this is in Romans. You can go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and begin reading in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So who did Christ die for? Ungodly. And what are ungodly people like? Well, they are not kind and lovely people. I mean, I think we can testify to that ourselves. We've seen it in our own lives before becoming a Christian. You've seen something of the depravity of your own life, your own heart. You're not a lovely person. You've experienced it in the world as you're around those who you're seeking to minister to. The, the wickedness of the heart, they, it's not a, you don't describe people in bondage to sin as kind and lovely people. Well, that's who Christ came to die for. He died for the ungodly. And then going on, verse 7, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. So if there's someone who has done a lot for you, you might be willing to sacrifice for them, even lay your life down for them. But go on to verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God's standard is not like our standard. He doesn't just love those who love him. Quite the opposite. He died for us while we were sinners, while we were still in our sins, while we were his enemies, while our wicked and rebellious hearts were storing up wrath that would be poured out upon Christ, he died for us. That is unconditional love. And if we are going to love as he has loved us, we cannot have any conditions on our love. So in our, think of the relationships in your life, family, friends, the brethren here, co-workers, neighbors, 
those relationships and, and be thinking, are there conditions? Is there ways that I'm withholding something back because of uh, an offense that someone has done to me? Or am I failing to, to give of myself in some way? If we are going to follow in Christ's example, uh, as he said, to love as I have loved you, then um, we, we, need to, we need to know what that love is and to meditate on what Christ has shown us here in his word. And so I want to just finish this time here by applying this to our own lives and asks, how are you doing in this area? How are we doing in this area? And so the first uh, one that I have uh, to ask is children. How are you doing in loving? And I was thinking of what, what are some of the key relationships that a child has? And for myself, growing up, I think one of the key relationships was my own brother. So children, how are you doing in the relationship with your brothers and sisters? And if you're honest, you have to say, it is hard, isn't it? It's hard to love your brothers and sisters. But do you know why it's so hard? Because you see the faults and mistakes in your siblings, and it's hard to love imperfect people, just like we talked about earlier. But Jesus loves us, and we are certainly not imperfect people. We are full of flaws, and Jesus loved us. If we are going to imitate that love, then we are to love imperfect people, and that means your brother and your sister or your friends. Well, what about parents? How are you doing parents towards your children? Well, one thought that I had in this, if your children are alive, fed, and dressed this morning, it's a testament to the fact that you have sacrificially loved them. You have served them in some way. (laughs) Children are needy all the time, and parents, especially moms, are constantly giving of themselves for their children. But when we look at the example of Christ, what do we see? We don't see that Jesus gave, 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 and then went back home and grumbled and complained about all that he had to do for the multitude and how they were unthankful and they didn't thank him for the 5,000 people that ate or whatever. You don't see that in the life of Christ. He gave of himself without complaining. Loving as Christ's love is not just outward action. It's an inward heart mentality as well. The heart has to be in the right place. I was thinking of that chorus that we sing, Change my heart, O God, may I be like you. And that's what we need. We need our heart to be changed. We need our heart to be like Christ. Well, husbands... How are, you, how are you doing? How are we as husbands doing uh, toward our wives? Well, we have a particular exhortation in this, to us in this regard. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here we have a command, love your wife, followed by... The example of Christ, just as Christ loved the church, well, how did Christ love the church? Well, Paul tells us he gave himself up for her. And again, that that defines it. That tells us exactly what Paul is referring to. How do I love my wife? Give yourself up for her. That is sacrificial love. That's the definition of sacrificial love, to give yourself up for someone. Husbands, if we are going to love like Christ loved, then we must give ourselves up for our wife. What does that look like? You know, what does that practically look like? What are some examples? Well, it certainly means we have to deny ourselves. Um, maybe it's saying no to something. You know, get a call. Can we get together and do such and such? Not this evening. I want to spend some time at home with my wife. Maybe it's staying home with the kids so that your wife can go get away, get a little rest, be refreshed. Uh, Maybe it's cooking dinner sometimes so that take that relief off of your spouse. Maybe it's cleaning up afterwards. Thank you for the great meal. Now it's my turn to serve you. Uh, You can go rest. These are all suggestions. I mean, there's countless in, in your own life. You can think about that. How can you as a husband serve your wife and give yourself up for her? But here's one. 
that we all need to be doing as, as husbands, as men in our home. And it's the follow-up verse to what I just read there. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So, husbands, are you washing your wife with the word? Is her soul being fed? Are you praying for your wife? These, this, it is a sacrifice to pray for someone, to consistently pray for someone. I was thinking of an example of a brother that we all know that has told me on numerous occasions that every day he prays by name for his family, and that's his wife, his four daughters, and all his grandchildren. By name, prays for every one of them. And that's, that is a sacrifice to consistently be bearing those people before the throne of grace. Lord, have mercy upon them today. Give them grace. Help them to overcome temptation. Help them to walk with you. That is a sacrifice. And so that is one way, certainly, we as men can love our wives and give ourselves for them, is to be praying and feeding them from the word. Well, wives towards your husbands, how are you doing in that? And as I mentioned to the parents... Um, towards the children. Wives, are you sacrificially loving your husbands? Are you serving them? Well, yes, I see it in, from what I can see, the, the church as a whole. We are, the wives are pouring themselves out for their husbands. There is service going on all the time in the home. But the question is, how is your heart? How is your heart in that service? Is it being done with an attitude of thankfulness, or is there an inner grumbling and complaining in the service? And again, the question to ask is, how did Christ love us? How did he serve us? Did he serve us with grumbling and complaining, or was it with joy? And I thought of this verse there in Psalm 100. It says, serve the Lord with gladness. He desires your heart, in it. not just the action. He desires your heart. Um, And that kind of gets back to what my dad was sharing on earlier. It's not just the sacrifice. He's not just looking at the outward action. He desires the heart to be right. Well, how are we doing brethren towards one another? Do we only love the ones that we find easy to love? Do we find ourselves forgiving up to a point? You know, seven times is enough here. Um, Are there conditions on our love? Do we withhold grace towards others because of something they've done to us? You know, you find yourself being a little cold or a little indifferent to someone because they've offended you enough times. That's not the love of Christ. That's not how Christ demonstrated love to us. Well, these are hard questions. They're very probing questions, convicting questions to think about. And the reality is it's an impossible standard for us to live up to. How can I love my wife and my kids and the saints like Christ loved me? Even on a perfect day, I still don't love them as Christ loved me. So how can I do it? Christ has told me, love as I have loved you. How do I do that if I fail every single day? And the answer is, we can't. We can't love as Christ loved by gritting our teeth and loving a little harder, you know, just sheer willpower. You know what? I haven't been doing this. It's time to crank up the love meter a little bit and show a little more love. You can't do that. We cannot do it in our own strength. But I want to close by turning to John chapter 15 again. This is where we started. But we're going to go to the beginning of the chapter, John chapter 15, and begin reading in verse 1. Jesus speaking to the disciples, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. 
so neither can you unless you abide in me. And I'm going to go on here in just a minute, but we'll stop right there. We cannot bear fruit on our own apart from Christ. The only fruit we're going to bear will be a result of our abiding in Christ. So if, if you want to love more, then you need to be abiding in Christ. Well, verse 5, uh, going on here, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So here we have a promise. If we abide in Christ, we will bear fruit. But then there's also a statement of reality here. Apart from me, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. We can't love. We can't obey. We can't live the Christian life apart from Christ. We can't do that in our own strength. And then verse 6 If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So it finishes that little section with a warning. If you try to be a Christian in your own strength, apart from abiding in Christ, you will dry up and die. You you can't do it. So we are not called to be like Christ in our own strength and ability, The only way that we're going to be like Christ is if we realize our own inability and come abide in him. And thinking again of the verse that my dad referenced to there at the end, says, to this one I will look. This is God speaking. To this one I will look. Who? You know, who is it? The perfect one who loves all the time. No. To this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. What is characteristic of someone who is humble, contrite, and trembling at the word of God? It's someone who realizes, I can't do this on my own. Lord, help me. Have mercy upon me. That's the one that God is going to look to. That's the one who is well-pleasing to the Lord. Before Jesus gave the command, it's interesting here. I I started by reading in verse 12 to open the, the message. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's verse 12. Before he gets to that, he's telling us, abide in me. You need to abide in me. And then the command, love one another. First, we must abide in Christ. And it made me think of there in the the fruits of the spirit in galatians chapter 5 the fruit of the spirit is love the very first fruit that is mentioned love well what is a fruit well it comes from well you think about a vine the branch has to abide in the vine it has to be tied into the vine and if it is tied into the vine there's going to be fruit that grows on that vine because of it abiding in the branches abiding in the vine then there's going to be a fruit that grows from that. And what are the fruits that grow from that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. That's where we are going to, if you need to grow in, in love, if you need to grow in these qualities, you're not going to get it by just trying a little harder. It, it only comes through abiding in Christ. So may the Lord help us, first of all, to abide in him, and secondly, may the Lord help us to love one another as he has loved us.